This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Folks, we have a truly incredible Dreamland today about the most extraordinary UFO close encounter in history, witnessed by multiple people, as you will see. Uh, and the documentary filmmaker has gone back into the past to see their stories as they were told when it happened, and then met them now, years later, and it's remarkable. However, there's one problem, and that is, as those of you who are frequent listeners know, there are audio glitches that occur on this show, and many of them cannot be identified. This has happened in this particular version of Dreamland, edition of Dreamland, and it's very minor. It's only when I speak, which is typical, and uh, I'm sure you'll be able to listen to it anyway, but I really apologize for this. If there was anything that we could do about it, we would. Today on Dreamland, we have Randall Nickerson with us. Randall is a documentary filmmaker. He has recently com completed an extraordinary film called Aerial Phenomenon. That's not Ariel as in airplanes, but Ariel as in school. It's about a remarkable incident that occurred back in 1994 in Zimbabwe in a school that was a, in an unusual location that we will talk about a little later. An important location, I think, uh, in view of what happened and what we now know about the close encounter phenomenon. Uh, 60 children, at least, at the aerial school witnessed a landing of a UFO, and many of them communicated with entities that came out of the UFO. I remember back in 1994, Dr. John Mack, who was, we were good friends at the time, and in fact, we were until the day he died, uh, called me up and said, Whitley, I think I've just heard about the most incredible UFO uh, sighting in history. Uh, a BBC reporter has called me, and he went on to describe a remarkable story. And Randall is here to tell us that story and tell us about the experience of making this film all of these years later and going back to the aerial school, children, now adults, and finding out from them what it means to them now. And I might add that there is a glitch of some kind. And listeners, I hope you're used to this. I can't do anything about it. As you know, I am not alone in this apartment. Uh, this extraneous signal, which, as my listeners know, disappears from the radio the second you step out of the apartment is going crazy this morning, and we are getting feedback from it, I'm sure. That said, Randall, welcome to Dreamland. Thank you, Whitley. It's, it's great to be here. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Well, good. Uh, can you tell us, to begin to tell us what it was that drove you, drove, uh, that drew you to this particular story? You've made a lot of films, uh, so tell us about that. 
Um, it was the kids. You know, it was the children that, that uh, really drew me. Seeing the first interviews uh, that John, uh, the first time I saw John Mack's interviews of these children, I, I was just very struck by the fact that they were telling the truth, their body language, everything about the way they expressed what they were saying, I felt was, was completely true. Um, didn't know exactly what they were talking about at that time. That was back in 95. And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, that was really what, what, uh, struck me. And the, the deeper I went into finding other interviews, finding other witnesses, uh, it just didn't stop. You know, I couldn't, I was motivated because it was just, it, it just, there kept being more, um, witnesses and more validity to the whole, uh, experience that they had. Mm -hmm. And so that you, you first learned about this, I, were you in one of the John Mack groups or how did you learn about it? It's so early. Um, yes, I, I, it was a meeting John Mack had in 1995 was, that was the first time I, uh, viewed that tape. John had showed a group of people. Um, and that's, that's, I, I just remember that from back then, but I, you know, just to be honest, I, I did have an, an encounter when I was younger and, and also when I was older. Um, and that likely very much influenced my drive to tell this story. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just don't want to talk too much about my own well, thing I, when I think this, this is about somebody else, you know? It is, but, you know, I won't ask you about your own if you don't want to talk about it, but I think it's a very important piece of the puzzle to understand why you're here now and why you were motivated to do what you did because the whole contact process is about these linkages and motivations. In other words, you wouldn't be here if you hadn't had a contact experience. Likely true. I, I don't think I would have ever believed this phenomenon was true if I didn't see it with my own eyes. That's yeah. just the truth. I mean, I grew up in a very mechanical, engineering, electrical background. And if it wasn't in front of, if I couldn't either meter it or have it in my hands, it didn't exist, you know? So to run into something like that, that was just unexplainable completely in the worldview I got brought up in did have an effect. And it actually uh, affected the way I um, had to, to research the story because I had to be extremely objective, you know, more so since I had seen one of these things myself. So you had this in your background. We'll, you know, we'll, we're going to have Randy back on the show to talk about his own experiences at some point soon. But right now we're going to stick with the aerial school phenomenon. Randy, why don't you set the scene for us? Uh, you must, John must have talked to you early on. Uh, you were involved with him in one of his groups, I believe. And he so what happened when you first heard about this incident? What did, what did he say? Um, he just, this was back in 95 and he didn't say 
very much actually. He just had, I, he just, I, I happened to be there to watch it and I was just struck by it. And I'm like, I, I felt, well, what a fascinating story. I'd be interested to know more about that. But then I didn't see that footage for 12 years. And it was John's um, um, very good friend, Dominique Kalanopoulos, that, uh, Kalamanopoulos, uh, that uh, after I'd finished a 16-minute film for the psychological community, um, which did very well, uh, she, I showed it to her and her sister, and, and she asked me, would you be interested in doing this story on the kids in Africa? And I was immediately like, wow, absolutely. Because and that was just the beginning. It's a remarkably important story with a message that resonates powerfully right now, which we will get into as we move on into the show. Uh, now, let's, let's set the scene. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the aerial school and the area that it's in? Sure. Um, the aerial school is in Zimbabwe. It's about an hour or so outside of Harare, this the main, the capital of Zimbabwe. Um, it happened in 1994 in September, September 16th, in the morning. Um, uh, it's a rural, very rural community, farms, it's all farms. And um, basically how this cool school started back in 1991 was the farmers that were out there had to take their children into Harare to go to school. So they decided they wanted to build their own school and there was a farmhouse that was empty. And uh, that's how they started the school with one farmhouse and then it grew and grew and grew. Um, and they included the local Shona village, those children. Um, it became a very big school. It's an enormous school, I have to say. You know, not necessarily all the buildings, but the, the playing fields. It's like a college campus in, in a lot of ways. It's pretty large. And which so it's, it's still thriving. Yes, it is. Yeah, yes. Well, that's wonderful. It's a beautiful school. I mean, I, I wish I could have gone to a school like that. It was, yeah, me too. I, I got the same impression when I was uh, watching the film that it was a lovely place and it was probably a wonderful school. Yep. So this is in September. Now, tell us a little bit about the geography of the immediate area, which I think is quite important. And you, toward the end of the film, you get into that a little bit, and there's some extraordinary images of those rock formations uh, where the the ancient chiefs are buried. Can you tell us a little bit more about that area? Well, I've been to the school three times, and it was only the last time that I that somebody brought it up to me that we were the aerial school was in the middle of all these ancient Zimbabwean burial grounds. I had no idea. So on three sides of the school and the school's right in the middle. Um, it's, it's a, the world heritage site, which first two times I went, I did not know that. Um, so that was pretty profound to learn and also to talk to the chief to the villagers who knew about <clears throat> what happened at Ariel. Um, um, there's so many people, honestly, there's a lot of other witnesses outside of Ariel school. I was not able to put in the film because there's so many, 
Um, but I'm sure those witnesses will come forward in time. But there, there was plenty of witnesses to that event other than the children. You know, it, it's a huge event and a terribly important event uh, because it, we don't... I'm trying to think of any other event where so many people saw so much and and had such extensive communication. I don't think there is one. I think when John called me up and said, this is the most important UFO case in history, I think he was right. You know, he was a very quick study. As you know how brilliant he was, you knew him. Um, and a, a lovely human being as well. Um, so and we have to thank Bud Hopkins for getting John involved, by the way, because it was Bud who first brought John into this. And uh, Bud is a... Bud was um, great. He, he He's a foundational figure in this. And uh, really? Yeah. He deserves to be in the history books, you know? Yeah, well, hopefully he will be one of these days because somebody's got to start to write the real history of mankind. And it's not what's in the history books now. There's more to us than a history of warfare. And that's essentially the, the history of the species is essentially a narrative of these strange catastrophes that we call wars. But there's another history here. There's a spiritual history of mankind. And this story is very much part of that spiritual history. Because it's not just a nuts and bolts story. There's a lot more to it. Now, Free Dreamlanders, we're going to take a brief break here. And you're going to uh, enjoy some of the commercials that you've probably already seen. And that's okay. You might see the trailer for, uh, for Aerial Phenomenon as well. And uh, so do go to aerialphenomenon.com. And you can rent the film on the website. I did that. It's 1995, I think. And um, I watched it both with Leslie Kane and with and alone with myself. I've watched it twice, and it's very, very well worth watching. Randy, it's so um, warm. It's very warm. Uh, anyway, Free Dreamlanders will be right back. We're talking to Randall Nickerson. He is the documentary filmmaker who made Aerial Phenomenon about the Aerial School event in 1994. It is an update of this story. And you went back and you talked to the people, now adults, who were children then. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about I noticed in some cases that this is a, has been a very profound, I would say, life-changing experience for some of them. Maybe for all of them. I don't know. Can, can you tell me some of the stories that stand out in terms of the way the, their lives have changed because of this that struck you most powerfully? Um, I think what struck me... Well, I, I was thinking while you were speaking just a, a little bit, one of, one of the kids when they were interviewed uh, in 1994 told John Mack, like, he said, what do you think it is? And uh, he said to 
John Mack, he said, I, I think there's other animals out there. You know, and it just, in such a simple way, he was referring to those creatures that they all saw. Yes. And um, it was just an interesting way to put it. Um, you know, I've, I've met 43 of them and spoken with them. And, you know, they are, they're all deal with it in a different way, depending on, you know, how they grew up, who their parents were, how accepting their parents were or not. Um, I think it profoundly changed everybody that, that, that had seen it. Um, and some people are in process with that still. And others have chosen not to, you know, to chose to block it out uh, for the most part, but they agree that it happened. Um, but I, the, one of the main things, and I got this from their parent, the, the kids' parents, was that, you know, I asked the parents, like, what did this do to your children? And more than one of the answers was um, it opened up possibility for them that they, once they'd seen that afterwards, they felt nothing was impossible because what they saw wasn't even supposed to exist. And it helped them uh, in their careers of, in a way to come out of Zimbabwe and, you know, think in possibility that I can do whatever I want. And they're, they're all very successful uh, children um, all around the world. Lawyers, you name it, just all kinds of different models and teachers and, and just, just really contributing to the world. That's what I've seen. That's remarkable. You know, Dan Aykroyd, uh, said upon watching the film it puts the issue in a touching emotional place and that is so true because you get the you get the emotional sense of it very powerfully and it, it the the way it affected people it changed their lives there was one case that is touched on in the story in the film of a family, the child of a family who had very strong religious convictions and who had trouble with this. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, she had, um, her parents were very religious and they didn't allow it to be talked about in the home. She's not the only one that went through that. It was a, it was a Christian school, even though they had many different students of many different religions. Um, um, and they allowed to those people to practice, um, but it was very Christian in its, uh, you know, in the assemblies and, um, but they were also, uh, allowed other religions, other races like the Shona and, um, you know, even, uh, Middle Eastern people, just different people from the school was very cross mixed race wise, which is fascinating. You know, it wasn't just yeah, one. I should say, it wasn't so. just a white school, or you know, what I mean, an African American school. Or, it was very wide, widely um, dispersed. Um, so, what was that question again? The, uh, the, the how did the the children who had trouble? Let me broaden the question a little bit, rather than concentrating just on the one child. There were children who had trouble with this. Yes, and the the ones especially whose parents rejected the phenomenon. 
Yes. Can you tell us a little bit how those children are, how they are now? I, I, you know, they think about it. Um, I don't know if there are quite a few I, I, that don't know where to place it as far as, because they haven't been listened to. Uh, and they're, they have in the past been res, reticent to, to say anything. Um, so I think that's an important process to go through. Some are, have gone through that, and, but the majority really have kept quiet. Um, and you know, fear of ridicule, fear of all that, and yes, you know, their friends laugh at you, laugh at them, whatever, or religion, you know. Trying you know, to when you when you put you it into religious terms, right? They they can't it, they can't contextualize it religiously, except that these must be demons if they're real, and unfortunately. Religious people, for the most part, have very specific ideas about what demons and angels look like, and these these entities don't look like angels. Now we had a uh, last week on Dreamland. We had a um, man called Charles Upton on the show who believes that these are demons and that they're the jinn of of his faith. He's a Sufi Muslim and. Uh, it's a very interesting approach. I don't know that it's real. You know, I, let me ask you this. You've been steeped in this. You've had experiences. You know an enormous amount about the aerial school incident, probably at this point as much as anybody in the world, or more. More, I would say. Yeah. What do you think they are? I I don't think they're in our context of religion, to be honest, I think they're, my personal opinion is they're not good, evil, or any of that. They're another species from somewhere else that's likely evolved far further than us. I'm I'm pretty sure of that. Um, And they're looking at us much like we look at um, lower order species to us. So I don't think there's, you know, it, it kind of bothers me that people would think that this is the devil or, you know, I don't think that's what we're seeing. It's uh, some other species, some other animal out there that um, has evolved and uh, is doing science with us, basically. And maybe more than that, we don't understand. There's a lot, you know, I, that I've heard, seen and interviewed other people that it's just hard to even wrap your head around um, because we just have no cross references for it. You know, some of the, the, the things that happen to people. Um, so I, I just think uh, putting it into any kind of religious uh, context, if we do that, we're going to be missing something because this is not, this is not what that is. This is some other species, you know? Yeah. And why don't you, it's what we call the grays, clearly. Why don't you describe the bodies of these creatures and the heads as the children describe them so that the listeners can know. I mean, when I say it's the grays, folks, You'll, when you hear this, you'll understand. So go ahead and tell us what they look. The, the kids reported. 
Um, they reported uh, when they first saw them that, that they were in black, you know, um, very skin tight black suits um, that were type, kind of shiny, you know, um, and frail bodies, um, about four feet, three and a half. Some of the kids say, you know, it was about the size of a sixth grader. I mean, that's an <laughs> interesting feet. way to describe it. Yeah. And a very large head that came to a point, you know, here. And uh, very large eyes they described uh, described as rugby balls. Um, so, and the skin complexion was was very whitish, pinkish. That's what I had heard over and over. Um, and but it was the same report, or the same. They looked the same as uh, the, the reported grays that have been reported all over the world. Um, and I don't understand that, but it was it was typical, but not typical in being dressed in black. I found that through the research that that was a rather unusual detail that had been seen a handful of times, um, and which made me say, if, well, if they were going to make up a story, they would have gone with the the popular story, right? But they their details were different. You know, they were unique um, and and uh, they had a good amount of time to observe these things. And somehow how, time was how long? How long were they there? Uh, 15 minutes. That's yeah. a remarkably yeah. long time. That's a long time. Yeah, I think it I, is, you know, when I think back, I think that John was right back in 1994 when he said that he thought it was the longest time of uh, uh, an encounter like this has happened to people who were in total normal, totally normal state in, in history. And I think it still yeah. is. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's the longest I've found. Yeah. And we're going to get into uh, the, there's a reason for the encounter uh, and we'll a complex group of reasons, actually. And we're going to get into that in a little while but I, I want to do the second commercial break now. So free dreamlanders watch and listen carefully. Okay. We're back. So these children were profoundly affected by this. And so were the adults at the school and you've, some of them are still very much around. And how was the arc of, of memory? in the adults, in the teachers, basically, in supervisors who experienced this crowd of children coming running up from the edge of the field, of the soccer field, screaming and yelling that this had happened. Yeah, they are, I mean, everybody that was there that day remembers, like, remembers it like it was yesterday even the teachers and everybody that was there. Um, you know, the teachers initially were not uh, convinced at all. It, it took the kids going home to their parents to um, tell them. And then the parents called the school saying what happened to our kids, which is what got the school to um, 
excuse me, take action. And what sort of action did it take? Um, they had them draw what they saw. You know, they had them, the kids, it's funny, because you'll see some of the drawings, and it's not like they had a lot of crayons. Like, they didn't have the full set of crayon boxes, so they used whatever color they could, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they didn't have silver crayons. <laughs> it, it, you know, it wasn't like our schools or, or right. you know. They, they'd struggled to get supplies. So uh, they had all the children draw what they saw, and uh, those were very moving. And then also they had this the children write in their storybooks what they saw, and that was a second um, confirmation from the very different perspectives that all these children saw it from. Some were on the playing field, some were far away by the tuck shop, um, some were gathered at the rock, some were by the steps of the staff room. Um, I mean, there were children all over the place um, in different places, in different positions. Um, so, yeah, you see a, um, a lot of the effect when I talk to pe- the people today, uh, just how much they remember and um, like it's... It's fresh. Yeah, because it was so powerful. Um, Now, let's talk a little bit about what it means and what it meant uh, to these children. Uh, There were, I guess there were over 60 of them. And some of the children speak rather uneasily about the feeling that they were being, that inside them, they were hearing something saying, I want you. And that they wanted to go with them, to go with them. And that is very traumatizing. I guess I'm, you've had you have a lot of knowledge, even personal experience with this thing. Do you think possibly something else happened that they can't articulate or don't remember? Could there have been missing time, for example? It's possible. I mean, I didn't want to go down that avenue because of the story was just incredible on its own. Uh, yeah. Um, but given the time that was... Um, spoken, the different events that happened with these creatures, like that one that you just brought out, that was very important. Nobody's brought, really addressed that. You're the first person I've spoke about that with in an interview. Um, but yeah, they felt like they those creatures wanted to take them. Did they? I don't. I don't know. I think there's more to this story. I do know that uh, than than just what is in the film, um, but I chose not to go down that avenue because uh, the story was so full. Yeah, it was so hard to cut it down to an hour and thirty eight. It was really difficult because this is a, it's, this is a very big story. How, how long did it take you to make this documentary? Fourteen and a half years. Fourteen years. Yeah. 14 years. 
Yeah. It's a magnificent achievement, folks. It really is. Don't forget that number. He worked on this for 14 years. There's, there's something about us, the people who have this experience. I've been doing this every day of my life since the morning I woke up after my first big experience in 1985. You've been doing it ever since you had your experiences. These kids, it's still alive in their minds all these years later. This is powerful stuff. It's powerful stuff. And yet we live in this strange world where it's sneered at and laughed at. I was in a bookstore recently and one of the clerks recognized me and said, oh, Mr. Streeper, I've read your books. And another of the clerks sneered openly right in my face. That happens all the time. And I guess it happens to you if people know what, who you are. So, mm -hmm. Not so much now, but uh, yeah, for a long time I got that. It was like almost like I was walking around with a T-shirt that just had a big question mark on it. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> and these kids have lived with that all of their lives now. That's why they've tried not, that's why they haven't really spoke about it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a long time ago and they never forgot it, but they just have never had an opportunity or, you know, anybody to trust to really share the story. Have any of them been hypnotized? No, I, not that I'm aware of. I wonder what um, would happen if they were. I don't know. No, I don't either. I mean, we don't know. Well, Obviously, we haven't done it yet. I just want, if they ever do that, um, I would like it to be them to be taken very good care of as far as, you know, their health. Because sometimes, uh, from what I've gathered, it can be pretty traumatizing to, to be hypnotized and go back to the event. Particularly, if anything, um, they blocked out in their own psychology to, right. to make sure they were okay, you know. Yeah, folks, all you have to do is go in unknown country and listen to my first hypnosis session with Don Klein. And you'll hear some trauma. There's a lot of trauma associated with it. Why is that, do you suppose? Because I, on the surface, you'd think, well, it's contact with aliens. And yeah, for a child, it would be a pretty surprising thing. But it seems like a fairly benign contact. Uh, yeah. But it's not benign. It it really is very powerful. I think that's largely because they are so unique. Um, to have a, an actual creature from some other evolutionary process with great technology, extreme um, mental capabilities that I can't even understand uh, is pretty shocking. And also the fact that these creatures can communicate to you through their minds. And right. that, all of that is, uh, is traumatic to uh, any animal. You know, like we are wild animals, human beings. We don't think of ourselves as that. But to, an, to a superior species, we're going to act like wild animals. And That's very astute. Be, tra be traumatized. But it doesn't mean they're intentions are that 
I don't believe that. Um, there, it's just uh, the, our gap between who we are as, as human beings and to what they are is so huge that it's almost impossible for them not to have a, an effect on us that is, you know, disturbing. Oh, right. uh, but I, I do not believe that's their intention. It's, you know, it's a little bit like an ant, try, an elephant trying to dance with an ant. The elephant might like the ant very much, but he still has to be damn careful. And so does the ant. Um, the, the, um, my sense of it is that, that the kids are, there's a lot of buried trauma. I, I saw that in the adults. In the, in, in, did you sense any of that when you were with the, with them? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. before some of the interviews I did, there were, you know, some of these witnesses were crying. Um, yeah, that happened more than a few times, and I, it was a big deal for them to to speak about it. Yeah, they they were crying that, and this is all these years later now. I mean, nineteen ninety four after all is a while back, uh, and uh, I knew that. I sensed that when I saw them in the in the interviews, because they, they, they're they not crying in the interviews, but you can feel and hear in their voices the deep timber of uh, something else. It's very interesting to listen to Rick Randall. It really mm -hmm. is. That's why I watched it twice. The first time I watched it with Leslie Keene at her house in New York a couple of weeks ago, and we she'd seen it before, but... Uh, Obviously, I mean, she's, she's given you a big blurb and everything, and you're mm. good friends with Leslie, who is an extraordinary person. And, yeah. Um, I agree. So, and I, I felt that then, but when I was watching it earlier today, it came through loud and clear. I was looking at human trauma, profound human trauma, and yet at the same time, Tell us exactly, why don't you, and I, I'm remiss for not having done this. Tell us exactly, lay out the scene of that day. What happened precisely to, uh, the children are playing, they're playing soccer on a soccer ground. There is a uh, brushy area beyond it. And it's surrounded, as we now know, by sacred sites that have a lot to do with the dead. But tell us what then happened. Uh, well, the first thing that happened were, were kids on the playground uh, looking up toward the sky because they were seeing these silver things flash across the sky and, you know, appear and disappear. And then it was not too long later that they noticed one of these silver things on the ground about, 100, 200 yards from the playground, the edge of the playground. It was quite a distance away, but they could see it really well. And they watched, they, they started to gather at the bottom of the field. Uh, not all of them, because they were all in different locations, and there was another playing field that was, you know, 15 feet up that was surrounded by trees. So nobody at that, on that field could have even seen that. Um, so, yeah, and then they all saw these, um, at least the majority of them, saw these creatures come out of this thing in black. 
and then at least two, um, at least, I'm sorry, at least one, but there are people that have reported that there were, there was at least two that they saw, but definitely one that approached the playground and made direct eye contact with them. And, and then the, there, and some say that there was more than one, um, that also approached the playground. So, but the p- predominant testimony is that there was one particular one that approached them directly. And that's where they had that contact where they were staring at each other and the world time sort of just became, you know, distorted and all the things from the outside went away and, uh, they started getting these um, pictures in their head about um, our planet and our environment, which uh, was very interesting. <laughs> and then they heard, also heard quite a few different sounds coming from this craft, uh, which actually scared them. Um, yeah, I noticed that they, they were frightened by the sounds in particular. One little girl calls it the sound like of a flute. Mm-hmm. That's what she heard, and another. The others talked about buzzing, and then a sound that became very loud. Yeah, that that's yeah that buzzing sound, and then uh, the high pitched sound. People describe it in all kinds of different ways, but I like the flute one. And those the people that said it was like a flute were music in band class. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, they were in music class, so they knew what that sounded like, which is very interesting. Um, and that's when, once that sound started to get louder, that's when everybody started to run like crazy toward the, the teacher's lounge. Yeah. Because, yeah, because it must've been absolutely frightening. And suddenly yeah. the teachers are in the teacher's lounge and all the kids come running up. How did the teachers react to that? Uh, they were shocked, you know, initially they, you know, tried to fog them off. That's the way they used it. Their, uh, the headmaster used it. Just say, go back to playing. Um, but it did strike quite a few teachers that they were all scared of something. You know, and then several teachers went outside um, right after this. And Did any of them uh, see anything? I don't think so. Yes. Oh, they did. Who's, tell us a little bit about that. It's not in the film. We, we decided not to um, include it in the film because it's a whole nother story. Uh, but yes, one of the teachers did see them and um, was watching them as they were leaving, I guess, or going toward the craft. And um, she remembers it still today very well. Um, yeah, I haven't shared that. There's there's a lot I haven't shared about this story because we couldn't put we couldn't fit it in. <laughs> there right. were so many there were so many other witnesses, and um, I had to decide. Okay, well, what's the story here uh, to tell? Because there's so many people, so many kids that aren't even in the movie, and um, unfortunately, limited to um, you know an hour and thirty eight minutes. Um, but the, you know, the director's cuts like two hours and 12 minutes, somewhere around there. That definitely has a lot more detail. When are you going Um, to release the director's cut? 
probably in six months or so. I six think months. We're, we're, yeah. it's already been done. We just want to go through and do it again, but we had to cut. That's the movie I would love to have released, but um, you know, most of the major streamers and everybody, they want it into, you know, around the 90 minute mark, right? hundred minutes max, you know? So, so that's what we did. It was really hard to do <laughs> to cut it down. Cause I, I can wanted- imagine. Now you, you, it's available now on aerialphenomenon.com for 1995. 1994. 1994. It happened in 94. Oh, yeah, that's right. It happened in 94, of course. <laughs> when will it be available on um, streamers? We're working on that right now. I had a couple of deals with major streamers, really big people, but they wanted to change the film. And, in what sense uh, did they want to change it? They wanted to add um, popular, more famous figures in, in the, you know, the UFO field. And I just, this is not their story. The, you know, the story is told by all first-person witnesses. Yes. There's no third-person hearsay. And I didn't want any other talking heads that had nothing really to do with the story. Um, so that was tough because I turned down a lot, but at the end of the day, it's like, I've been working on this for a long time, 14 and a half years. And, um, in January this year, I said, all right, that's it. I have to put it out myself the way I want it. And then let's prove its success as a great story, the way it is. And the streamers will, will be there, you know? So that's in the works. Who, who's actually going to, uh, take it. That's a, that's a, that's, we'll find out, but I'm excited about it because it's just doing the reviews we're getting are just incredible. They, they are. And, um, deservedly. So now free dreamlanders, we're going to take another break and subscribers. You're going to watch the trailer, uh, at, at during this break. Uh, normally the subscribers don't see anything and except the show itself. But I think this trailer is so very much part of the show. And also it's going to inspire you to go to aerialphenomenon.com and put up your 1995, settle back with your computer, or, or as I did, uh, cast it to your TV and watch it because it is very worth watching right now. And all of us experiencers can give this thing the boost that it needs if we do it now. We'll be right back. We're talking to Randall Nickerson about Aerial Phenomenon. Aerialphenomenon.com is where to find out more about this extraordinary film. He spent 14 years making it. And it is powerful. It is in a sense about humble people having a truly extraordinary experience that I suppose the presidents and the kings and the princes all want this experience for themselves, which may be one of the reasons why the media turns up its nose, because it happens to ordinary people. It doesn't happen to the, to the, to the people on the, on the high end of the spectrum of human life. I want to go back to something you said that I think is very important about 
the fact that we are a wild species. And, you know, I, I, I wrote about this extensively in my book, A New World, because it's very true. We are wild and the, um, we don't realize that because we're tame to each other. We're tame to human beings. I mean, I'm tame to human beings. And, but we actually react to these beings the same way wild animals react to us. And that's right. the source of the trauma, I think. You're right. So I, I, you know, I grew up in a log cabin out in Massachusetts in the country at hundreds of acres growing up. So I, you know, I would encounter animals all the time. I, you know, I encountered my first bear face a face to face with a bear when I was 16. And, um, you know, I sat with him. <laughs> he stared at me, pounded his paw on the ground, and I took off running like I've never run before. <laughs> but that was, you know, it started my wildlife photography career, which I've been doing for a long time. Um, I don't know if I, I, I have a website, um, randallnickersonphotography.com, and it shows you where I've been. I've been to Africa and Alaska, and I've spent an awful lot of time with wildlife. Um, and I see, you know, when I go shooting, and a lot of times I'll be in a hide for, you know, 24 hours, sometimes 48 hours waiting for a, um, you know, a, a cat or a bear to come out of their, their, their place, their uh, den. And um, anyway, it's just, uh, I see that. It's like almost like I'm the alien, you know, spying in on their world. And it can be very traumatizing for them. And uh, they have a lot of fears because they don't understand. Like, we've, we have things in our hands a lot. They don't know what those are. Uh, fire is uh, pretty scary to them, except for rhinos. <laughs> rhinos will, if you have a fire, they will stamp it out. You have to be really careful with rhinos. That For some reason in their evolution, they had, they, <clears throat> they're terrified of fires <clears throat> in the sense that they want to put them out right away. So that may be your campfire if you're out in the woods, out in the, out in the bush. So yeah, I agree with you that. out at the same time. I would yes, exactly. You gotta, you gotta get away from the fire when that happens. Yeah. Um, but I've had a lot of experience with wildlife on the surface and underwater scuba diving. And, uh, um, I, it's pretty, I, I agree with that, what you're saying. It's, uh, we're just, we just don't understand that we are wild, um, in our own right to another species that, uh, is, is further evolved than us. And, uh, it brings out a primal reaction, um, at least as an adult, as a child, it's a little bit different because you're still trying to figure out what's real in the world and you're, a little more open and you're not a full grown human being. So you're, you're not thinking of defense so much because you have your parents protecting you ideally. Um, but I, I really do believe that that is uh, our best reference to understand what's happening is nature and our relationship to nature it explains to me what my relationship and these and other people's relationship to these creatures one of the children calls them animals, and you've made that, you've used that word too. 
that comes out obviously out of your own experiences and out of your reading of what the children thought. And my wife used to say, she would say, there's a theater in the skies. Look at all UFOs. There are these events like what happened to you, Whitley, and happens to so many people. They're trying to tame us to them. That's what contact is about. And until they succeed, we're not going to fully understand who they are, what they are, or what this is all about. And this event at this school is so important, and this film is so important, because it's a part, a big part of the taming process to see these kids as children and then looking back on it as adults. This is what we have to do to begin to get our minds around the fact that, yeah, when it comes down to it, whatever they are, wherever they're from, they are basically animals also, just like us. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, personal, my personal opinion is that they are, I've used the word domestication, um, but tame is the same thing. Uh, yeah. I really, I really believe that because that's what it looks like to me. And that's in, in, in other cases I've looked at, you know, there's all kinds of different things that occur, but I think they have a desire to, for us to get over our fear yeah, in order to, so they can address us because they're being very careful with us. They're not showing up in great numbers and they're doing it very carefully like we would, you know, when we, there's a, there's a lot of animals you cannot tame on this planet. We've tried. And um, like there's a black, black footed wildcat is yet to be tamed in Africa. Um, but taming takes an awfully long time to particularly a, for, to tame a wild animal. Um, so it makes sense actually how they've been interacting with us slowly carefully in small numbers right. all over the planet. Um, and I, I really do. That's what seems to me one of the biggest aspects of what's going on in this whole phenomenon. And they're getting closer to us right now, which is a, one of the reasons I think that your film ended up coming out right now, because it is a, a huge part of the experience of taming it. It reaches the heart and it reaches the unconscious mind very deeply. When you see the children as children, and then when you see them as adults, it is enhancing that process of acclimatizing us to them, to the visitors, because you can see it in the children's eyes and in the adults' eyes and voices. We, we, there's so much in their voices, especially at both age levels that we are reacting to unconsciously. What do you think now? You've lived with this all these years. What do you think now that, that they are? Are you frightened of them? Because I go back to the little girl and the other children who thought that they wanted us in some way. Mm -hmm. Was it to go with them? 
or to be with them, to survive? What's the motive? Yeah. Mm. Those are all very good questions. I don't that I don't have an answer to. Um, I don't know if uh, human beings are. It's going to take some time and repeated um, visitations, if you want to call it that. Uh, yeah. To to to. Um, not have us go right into primal reaction and fight or flight. Um, I don't know how you do that because it's, it's when you see something like that, uh, your primal instincts take over. Um, and that's kind of what I've been working through and others as well as Me well. Too. Yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. The, um, the the instinctive level of this is important, but at the same time, the planet seems to be running out of time. Where you know there's all these earth changes taking place and the crazy weather taking place, fires all over the place, dreadful storms constantly. They say that uh, global warming is unfolding all around us right now, and we're running out of time, aren't we? Are they going to wait too long? Well, I think we're, what we're seeing globally with the Navy and, you know, we had the Senate Intelligence Committee a couple of weeks ago. I think, um, I think there are people that have held this card for a long time and only would bring it out in the most emergency situation, which is what's happening now. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the military has had much more close encounters with these things than I think ever and more routinely, which maybe these things are telling us something that they're going to be coming around. Doesn't mean invasion or anything else. I think they're, they see our dilemma. Um, yeah. I don't know if they're going to intervene with it. Uh, they definitely seem to be have warned these kids and they've warned pretty much every other person I've interviewed that has encountered these people, these things. So I do think we're on the precipice um, of massive change because of what is happening on the planet. Right. And I don't know what the outcome is. I don't know how they're going to intervene. You know, I don't know if they can fix this. I would imagine they could. I wouldn't put it past them because all the technology I've I've seen is just crazy. Yeah, me too. Well, free Dreamlanders, I have good news and bad news. The good news is this show is too important and that what we're going to talk about in the last half hour cannot be reserved. It has to be in the public part of the show. The bad news is you've got to listen to some more commercials uh, before you get there. And subscribers, of course, we will keep on keeping on. So, uh, Randy, you just began to touch on the core message here. And can you tell us a little bit about what the children heard in their minds? Because they did hear they were, I mean, I've had you and I, I mean, most of us experiences, I click into 
receptive mode as soon as I feel the presence of the greys because they don't talk. Uh, I've heard two words from them in, in clear language in my whole life, which were have joy. Uh, and which was Anne thought was a terribly important message. Uh, but this, there is a huge complex message here. So tell us a little bit about some of the things the children reported hearing in their minds. Um, I'm not sure how much was audio, to be honest. Uh, no, no, I, from, I'm not. I'm not. I'm talking about the mental part. Sure. I, and I don't think more, there was any audio. Yeah, there, it was more pictures and uh, like a movie in their minds. Yeah. Um, showing us what we were doing to our planet without any, any answers or how to fix it or anything. Just projecting into their minds what we were doing as a species on this planet. I mean, that's... It's wider than um, I was able. Uh, uh, there were more children that this had happened to than I was even able to, to interview because they didn't want to be interviewed about that. Um, so, but the message was very single to all of them was what we were doing to our planet. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, just pictures of devastation. You know, uh, one, uh, one not, not necessarily from war or anything else, but from um, the way we're changing our atmosphere, which is what we're doing. We're changing our we're changing our biosphere. We're doing it. Yeah. yeah, the sun's got a little part of it too, but predominantly, if you look at the industrial age and when we got all started getting super tech, we uh, we heated up this ball. Well, we've reached a level of carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere that's it hasn't been reached for millions of years i will add however when there have been extinction events caused by excessive carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and there have been quite a few there's been more than there is now so we do still have some time but how much is an, an open question because we live in a very big complex and fragile society and as we can see, this this what appears to be a minor war in the Ukraine has caused all kinds of problems with grain distribution and things like that. And uh, oil prices are going crazy because of uh, basically because of the war in Ukraine. So uh, it's fragile and it may be more fragile than we realize. We could have a situation where the planet doesn't completely collapse before civilization does so there's that now what some of the words were so haunting one of the little girls describes seeing in one of the images all these dead trees i've seen that i was driving in yellowstone a year ago with my family and going up the mountain you go through acres and acres of burned out forest, dead trees. It's really amazing. And, you know, this is a consistent message. It's my message. It, in, without going into your experiences, do you have a message like that in your? Same. Same. Most of us do. Most of us close encounter witnesses do. And then 
the ones who are, you know, are in the climate change denial syndrome situation, or I should say syndrome at this point, have a problem because, you know, they have this message, but they're not supposed to believe it. Mm -hmm. And yet the source of the message seems like maybe one we should believe. Yeah, I mean, they're looking at us from the outside. Yeah, exactly. Know? Exactly. Recently, a Google engineer uh, published an interview about a discussion he had had with uh, a, a major AI program at Google called Lambda. And he repeated a discussion he'd had with Lambda and claimed that uh, he, that the program is sentient and not necessarily conscious because we don't really know what consciousness is, but sentient in the sense that it knows itself and has feelings and, and experiences. And the program's responses to his questions were really very eerie uh, Google denied that the program was sentient, and I've talked to some other pretty advanced engineers who think that this was uh, this is not true, that it isn't sentient. But one of the things that was mentioned by the aliens or the entities in this in this experience was to be careful going down the road of technology, and you know they seem to have very high technology but at the same time when you're with them they have only one piece of technology that seems really high which is the ships themselves the rest of it is all them mm -hmm. so and then you see these things like hypersonic missiles that are going to disrupt the balance of terror as it were because when they're fully deployed, they're going to be able to strike before any radar systems can pick them up and respond. So every country in the world with nuclear weapons who has hypersonic missiles is going to be facing the same issue. They will lose if they are attacked at all. And previously the first strike would mean that you would be destroyed you might your first strike might destroy the enemy but it was mutually assured destruction that paradigm is being broken right now i think it makes nuclear war inevitable so i think the clock is at zero <laughs> and you yeah. remember the nuclear clock uh yeah we're not in a good place there that, um, you know, I, we deployed a lot of things up into space for that reason a long time ago. Um, and I, I hope that, uh, I would imagine they're still there and more advanced. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a very big concern what's happening in nuclear. And there does seem to be a direct connection with this phenomena and, they're uh, letting us know that uh, they don't like us playing with those toys, which goes back to that question one of the little girls brought up, you know, one of the kids, about how 
we're getting too technologized. And I think there's a, we, we <laughs> I, we're, as a species, we're, we've done incredibly well at uh, advancing technologically, but we haven't done so well at being responsible with those technologies. Not like, at all. Not, not at all. At all. Yeah. Um, and that's something we, I don't know how we, how we learn that. I mean, we've been advancing so quickly. We don't even take the time to say, well, what are the negative effects of this? We don't even do that. And that's just necessary. If you're going to create anything, you know, what are the, the good possibilities that this can help us like nuclear energy and what's the negative effects of that? Like they're on coast, they're on coasts. They're around water that can, you know, we saw it with Fukushima, you know. Um, we have to think more wisely about where we put these things if we use them because there's plenty of other ways to, to, to really. Well, um, yeah, we have, and now we have Chernobyl. God knows what could happen there after the Russians messed up all of the containment vessels and everything. A bunch of barbarians. Um the uh, there's another issue that is touched on in the film that you know, we're getting coming up sort of on the end of the show and i want to touch on the area that the event happened in uh surrounded on three sides by burial grounds and you know, my cabin in upstate New York had an Indian burial ground behind it. And the dead play a huge role in this whole experience. I've written about that in Afterlife Revolution in many of my books. And here we have a situation where these apparent aliens from another world land. And where do they land? Right in the middle of a sacred site which has to do with our own dead. Do you have any thoughts about that? I was surprised. I, I didn't know what to think about that. I still don't know what to think about that, to be honest. Um, but I know what the native people think about that. Tell um, us. <laughs> they, they believe that uh, they do visit the, the sites of their dead. And I mean, the sites around Ariel go back, you know, a thousand years. Um, and multiple chiefs and Sangomas, which are the witch doctors, so to speak, in Africa, they're the shamans. And um, again, they, you know, they have known these things about these things for an awfully long time. Like it's passed down through their history. Um, I got to interview Credo Mutwa several other chiefs and um one of the things credo said to me um i was in his village and sitting with him for quite a bit and he said to me he passed away unfortunately like a year ago at 91 um but he said you know we used to think they were gods for the longest time and we we finally came to understand that they were creatures from another uh, world because mainly because they started to recognize technology, their use of technology. Um, 
So it's 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 well known amongst the native, or at least it has been, and uh, the native cultures. So I mean that was a, an, an area I didn't expect to go in with this film, but it was there, and it was yeah pretty shocking and 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 so was their comment about why are you guys not coming to us <laughs> you know if you're studying this phenomenon we've known about it for thousands of years and that yeah. that there was a little uh angst behind that when he when he said it and others of like why have you not you why have you not consulted with us because we have a no- lot of knowledge to share that may be lost at some point, and that that was their concern. Um, was uh, us not, you know, people die, knowledge dies with people's often. That's true of of uh, of original cultures all over the world. It's certainly true of the Native American cultures. I have discussed this with Sioux people. And with people from other native native cultures in the in the United States and in the Americas, and they have a tremendous store of wisdom about this, and it's an important store of wisdom because it is uh, has been so processed by their cultures over the generations. In the close encounter experience, we've got a store of wisdom too, but it's not as processed. Uh, when Anne started saving the letters back in uh, the early late late 80s she realized that that they would be the beginning of a store of wisdom but only the beginning now they're they're all cataloged and everything at rice university so there's a there's there's a point of access and a bit and a foundation not only in those letters but in all of our experiences but in the native cultures you go back thousands of years Maybe at the beginning of man, maybe maybe even to the beginning of the planet. So, what is your final thought? And this is going to be a, a question you're not going to be able to answer, but everyone is going to be hanging on your attempt to do so. What do you think, beyond just being aliens from another planet? What do you think, in view of all that we have? learned about them and the site of the aerial school and all of the other sacred sites in the world that they frequent. What do you think they are? Is this about the soul primarily? The survival of the body in order to continue the evolution of the soul, perhaps? Uh, I've thought about that. Plenty. Um, I don't have the answers, you know. I, um, but I definitely have thought about that. Uh, hmm. But you know, you're going down the right road, even without not knowing, quite knowing why, just like the rest of us, we're feeling our way. Is there going to be anything else in your life about this subject? Are you going to make other documentaries or talk about your own experiences? Yeah. When I started, uh, when I, right before I started Ariel, I was actually doing a documentary on Bud Hopkins. And I had been shooting for three years and tons of hours and all the way up to, 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 to his death. Um, and he, he allowed me uh, a lot of inside 
let me inside in, in his house and home and, you know, everywhere. And uh, he's got an incredible story. So that's on the, the block. And also I have another story in Africa that I'm going to keep quiet because nobody knows about it, but it's also a very big event. Oh, wow. Uh, Africa seems to be a very, in, in South America, it seems to be very, the, the larger events seem to be happening mm -hmm. in the Southern Hemisphere, which is, to me, interesting. That is interesting. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of stories nobody knows about. There's so a lot there's of many stories I don't know about. Oh, I'm sure there are a lot of stories none, no one knows about because you said it yourself. A lot of the witnesses don't even want to come forward in this story because the culture is so brutal to witnesses. I mean, God knows you've experienced it. I've experienced it. Merciless bullying and, and uh, singling out and uh, harm to your reputation screwing with your life. Uh, none of the big publishers in New York will even publish my books anymore. I publish them myself. Some of the smaller publishers would, but they can't do his job as good as I can do myself. So, uh, and they, they won't because there's been a gradual hardening against this. Back in the 80s, I was beloved in the publishing community and people respected my stories and thoughts and that of those of Bud too, for example. But he ended up in the same situation I'm in, you know? Yeah. Hopefully that'll change as we, as more and more people are on the technical professional side are starting to look at this and say, wait a second, we, gotta, we have to address this. And, I hope so. Uh, look, it looks like that's happening. I, I, I've had several meetings <laughs> that I, I'm shocked to have had. And, um, it definitely seems like uh, there are serious people wanting to address this for the first time, really, ever. Um, so I'm, I'm personally, I'm just going to keep going. Um, I have a director and a producer interested in doing my story, which is funny because <laughs> I knew I was living some kind of strange movie. That's how yeah. it feels, right? I'm sure it felt that way to you. Um, and yeah, to have somebody tell it, I mean, That'll, that'll be interesting, you know. Um, definitely been a heck of a ride. Um, and, yeah, it's just, just got to keep are going. Are you satisfied with the ride life has given you? It wasn't my plan whatsoever. <laughs> Not mine either. <laughs> right? Not mine either. So, you know, uh, yeah, it just it was a hard right turn. Uh, that I hadn't, didn't expect, didn't want, didn't even believe in that stuff. And then my life changed. Um, I don't know what it would have been like had it not happened. I really don't. So I can't, it's hard to judge. But, I, you know, I've met some amazing people around the world. I, I got to say, I don't know if in my career path, if I would have had those same experiences with some just brilliant men and women and uh um yeah i think i'd keep it the same i think i'd i'd, I'd want a little more time off <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know what you, mean. you know what I mean no the 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 visitors don't have vacations vacation time and i'd like to sleep better i'd like to have gotten more sleep in my life for sure but oh well next time next time yeah <laughs> Randy Nickerson, thank you so much for being with us. 
Aerial Phenomenon is the film. Go to aerialphenomenon.com right now and put up your 1994 and mm -hmm. uh, watch it because the more people who make numbers go up on that site, the better chance he has of getting a really good distribution deal in streaming, which we all need because this film is important to every single one of us and to this world. Randy, it's a great pleasure to be with you. And I thank you so much for spending time with us on Dreamland. I appreciate it. Thank you, Lily. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.